We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio with... Jasmine Allnut. And this is like a happy and sad day too because Jasmine <sighs> is moving to Montana. This is her last podcast with us for a while. Right. As soon as her schedule evens out and she knows who she is and what she's doing, <laughs> then... She'll be uh, she'll be coming in from time to time, and we look forward to those times. So true. I don't know who I am this week. I'm talking. Yeah, thank you. Well, isn't that the truth? Yes. But um, Jasmine has one person that she's been dying to do, but we haven't quite gotten into singers. Yeah, no, we didn't get there, but that's okay. When we do, we'll do Jenny Lynn, too. Oh, great. We'll do it in order. But so we're just going to skip. Yeah, ahead of kind of everything because it's Jasmine, and this is important to <laughs> us. Thank you, my us. friend. Thank you. And she's going to do Mahalia Jackson. Can I ask how? Because <laughs> um, you like have been expressing this, like I love this woman. Yeah. How did you first like hear about her and begin to love her music? Well, gosh, honestly, I I only had known about her from uh, like at Christmas. She would come on the. Um, you know, like if you just put like on a shuffle, whatever, of Christmas songs and it had Mahalia Jackson singing Christmas carols and stuff like that. I didn't even realize she was a vibrant Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought, OK, black gospel singer, whatever, um, until I was teaching the school of worship class. And then as I was learning more about just the history of worship, I realized what a key role she played. And I was just like, whoa. This lady's awesome. And so I actually, yes, I've been wanting to do her for ages. I almost talked about her back way back in 2020 when we were doing, um, remember we were doing like African-American women during, right, right, right. yeah, during the Civil War right, and right. all of that. And I was going to try to sneak her in, but I think yeah. we like moved on. I don't yes. know what happened. So yes. we, that was, yeah, maybe we moved on to doctors at that point. I don't know. <laughs> and so. Well, um, we hadn't done singers. Yes, we just never got there. The, and you, the way so. we talked about were preachers and missionaries. They weren't singers. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if they could sing, they didn't want to write about it. Or yeah, I think Sojourner Truth would sing sometimes. Yes, actually, you're right. She did. So, um, yeah, so I'm so happy about this. I was like, gosh, I want to end on on her. For whatever reason, I've just really wanted to share on the queen of gospel song because that's how she was known. Um one author pointed out that writers have devoted more attention to Mahalia Jackson than any other single black gospel figure, which is pretty remarkable when you think about all the different people in gospel music. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been especially popular in biographies for young people. So I thought that was kind of neat. Wow. Some of the ones I looked up, I know, were um, like youth or children's biographies. Mm-hmm. So uh, Mahalia was born in New Orleans, October 26, 1911, to Charity Clark, who was a laundress and a maid, and Johnny Jackson. He was a Baptist preacher and a barber. Um, and they were unmarried, which is kind of like, whoa. But remember, this this was not that long after the Civil War. And so you got to remember during slavery. They weren't allowed to marry. They weren't allowed to get married or they, what was it, jumped the broom or something? Right. And, and that just, was, I mean, mm-hmm. it was a very unofficial, right. very... Um, nebulous kind of an mm-hmm. arrangement. And and they could be, you know, separated from their mm-hmm. spouses um, because the plantation owner wanted to do it. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it was not, it wasn't really looked down on um, at that time. So just trying to understand it in the context. Um, yeah. And so that's her parents, but uh, both sets of Mahalia's grandparents were born into slavery, but had been freed after the Civil War, obviously, and they stayed on in Louisiana as sharecroppers. And it's kind of crazy as I was just reading some of her reminiscing and, and all of that. I was just like, gosh, it's just weird because you think 20th century is so far removed from slavery and the Civil War, but it, 
got to remember, like, people's grandparents had been slaves. I mean, it wasn't really that far removed. And so uh, it's interesting because Mahalia said her uncle Porter always told her stories about how unfairly uh, black people were treated even after the Civil War when they were sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting because at one point, and this must have been, I'm assuming, in the 1880s or 90s, there was a boll weevil outbreak and that just destroyed all of the cotton plantations in that region of Louisiana. And so most of the larger plantations went bankrupt. And so he really believed, her uncle, that God sent it to judge that part of the South for their cruelty and their injustice. Mm. And, I, you know, honestly, Mahalia believed that. She said, um, oh, sorry, she agreed with him on that. And and honestly, I kind of think I do, too. I mean, you don't, you never know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if God had sent some kind of judgment from time to time. Uh, anyway, Uncle Porter had a huge influence on the family and was responsible for bringing her mom's side of the family down to New Orleans. And Mahalia said God had stirred Uncle Porter to lead the young people out of the wilderness of that sharecropping existence. He was determined to get out from under that. Um, and so she pointed out that he survived because he always tried to lead his life according to the word of God. And so really just godly man, loved the Lord. And it did. He kept out of trouble because a lot of, you know, it was very— um, I don't know. It was just a really hard life. And so a lot of young black men would find themselves just getting in trouble or not even doing anything and getting in trouble with the law, even if they hadn't done anything wrong. And so he somehow you know why? the Lord protected him. Yeah. Do you know why? Because the South wanted their slaves back. So what mm-hmm. they did is they would bring criminal charges against them and then they would uh, be put in prison and they, they would do work release. And so they're back into slavery. Pretty much again the same thing. I yeah. release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when so that was a tactic that was used by some of the totally. uh, former slave owners. And that had a lot to do with the sharecropping. Those yeah. men had been in trouble with the law. You know, I know you mm. use that in quotes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it had been um, trumped up. Yes. So to totally speak. trumped up charges. And yeah. so. Um, well, and even as sharecroppers, right. they weren't, uh, they were constantly in debt for whatever reason. Absolutely. They were always told, oh, yeah. you haven't paid that off yet. Yeah. Oh, it was just, yeah, it was right. a new Keeping them under form their... of slavery. Yes, just exactly. A, new form. a different form. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's neat because her uncle was so, uh, such a pillar. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you've read Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, I was reading a little bit about him. He kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Just or Moses, really right? trying to, yeah, there you go. Or Moses <laughs> leading him out, right? Just trying to stay to the word of God and yes. just follow Jesus right. no matter what was being done, what injustice was being done around him. And so, not surprisingly, his godly example made a real impression on the rest of the family. By the time Mahalia came along, uh, she was raised, obviously, in a very solid Christian home. The family was super involved in Mount Moriah Baptist Church. That's where she grew up. Um, her parents were, of course, very poor, and they had to live with the grandparents because they couldn't afford their own home. In fact, they were so poor—this is sad—that when Mahalia's mom died at age 25, mm. it's thought that—I know, at 25, it's thought that she actually died from malnutrition. Oh, so I don't know. I didn't get into all the circumstances with all of that. Um, but I mean, so sad. So, so sad. So Mahalia was only four mm-hmm. when her mom died. And so her dad sent her to live with uh, one of her aunts, another godly woman, but somebody who was a very strict disciplinarian. <laughs> so there were actually a lot of entertainers on her father's side of the family. But obviously, Mahalia's family wanted her to confine her musical pursuits to the church. They wanted to kind of redirect that a little bit. Uh, so she wouldn't end up being like a blues singer or something like that because that was oh for shame considered yeah. I know right I know to us it's like <gasps> back then yeah I'll, oh I'll mention that a little I'll circle back to that in a little bit 
So when she was about four or five, uh, she started singing at Mount Moriah and eventually became a member of the choir. From the time she was little, I love that. That's so cute. Yes. Can you imagine so how cool that would be? <laughs> no. Sometimes you see that, you know, in those in those kind of churches and like some of those black churches in the South. Everybody, I mean, everybody participates. It's kind of fun. So um, Mahalia loved the church and she was always drawn to the church. Um, she especially loved, obviously, the music, but also the preaching style. In fact, she said later she modeled her singing after the preaching style. Wow. Because she really wanted to convey—most right. of her songs were scripturally based that she yeah. sang. And so she wanted to kind of convey that same passion for the Word of God through her singing. Um, and as kind of a side note, it's interesting because uh, the church and the preachers— really kind of helped hold the black community together. And that was something that kind of came out in what she was saying in her autobiography as well. Uh, for example, because racism in New Orleans was so rampant and kind of like what we were just talking about, the wow. injustices that yes. were being committed and yes. false accusations and being thrown in prison for no reason, false arrests, all that stuff. Um, Mahalia pointed out that because uh, there were no lawyers for these men that were getting rounded up and thrown in prison unjustly, uh, often she said the preacher was the only mouthpiece that the Negro had. Mm. And so that's interesting. I was thinking about that, and I don't know if this is the case or not. Maybe you have to study this further, but mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that um, kind of speaks to the influence Martin Luther King would have later on as a minister, because mm -hmm. they were like the glue in the community. Mm -hmm. They were the voice for the community, maybe sometimes the only voice that people would respect because this is a man of God, this is mm -hmm. a minister. So I just thought that was um, kind of an interesting little side note, kind of a dynamic there in their community there in New Orleans. So her preacher, you know, he's the advocate for those that were unjustly treated. So uh, as a young teenager, Mahalia dropped out of school, worked as a laundress to help support the family. Again, they were poor, so it's not surprising she had to do this. Um, after an argument she had with her aunt, and again, remember, her aunt was very strict and could be a little bit on the domineering side, um, she moved out of the house uh, and was just so frustrated with the racism in New Orleans, so she decided to move north uh, to Chicago. She said she was a young, scared teenager when she went. And it's unclear whether she was alone or with family members. Um, it depends on the account you read. <laughs> Sometimes Mahalia said she was 16. Some accounts say she was a little older. But uh, whatever the case, she ended up in Chicago. And, of course, because she was drawn to the Lord and to the church— she found her way into becoming a big part of a church there. Soon she joined uh, the Greater Salem Baptist Church Choir. And they began to recognize, again, she's a little older now, she's a teenager, and they began recognizing that Mahalia had a very unique vocal ability. And so pretty soon they asked her to be a soloist. Eventually she became a member of the Johnson Gospel Singers and uh, performed with them for several years. Uh, she married a man named Isaac Hockenhole, in six, uh, 1936. But it's interesting. This was uh, one of those early moments of decision, I guess you could say. You know, she's in the valley of decision here. Um, he wanted his wife to become a jazz and blues singer because oh, that's where the money was. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, again, the 20s and mm -hmm. 30s. Jazz mm -hmm. is all the rage. I mean, she's from New Orleans. Good mm -hmm. grief. Um, but Mahalia only wanted to sing for the Lord. Wow. And that was a conviction, as we're going to see, that she maintained throughout her, her entire life. And so, mm -hmm. um, sadly, they did eventually divorce, uh, apparently over these differences. I don't know if you after what happened there. Um, so that was a, a real sad, heartbreaking time in her life that they would have that kind of level of tension and um, lack of like-mindedness. And so— um, now, but back when Mahalia was still a teenager, she teamed up with, I think when she was probably about 18, 19, 
She teamed up with uh, Thomas Dorsey, who is known as the father of black gospel music. Not to be confused with, and I accidentally did this before, Tommy Dorsey, who was a big band orchestra leader (laughs) and a trombone player. I remember when I first was reading about this Tommy Dorsey, I was just like, wow, a white guy was heading up black gospel? That's crazy. Back then in the 30s? No, it's a totally different guy. (laughs) I'm glad you clarified that because I was like— I'm You're sitting like, here oh, just Tommy like, Darcy. what? No. I know that. Yeah. Cheryl, sad thing is I did that the first semester. Yes. I taught school of worship and I didn't know until the <laughs> next year. So I apologize to all those students that I misled. So anyways, <laughs> foolish of yes. me. I know. So, but it's neat because he became kind of a mentor to her. And I want to mention him for a second here because Dorsey actually was the first person to mainstream blues music. And blues was originally... Um, sung by poor black men during the Great Depression. They just go stand on street corners and sing these songs. But a lot of the lyrics of these songs were really crude and kind of vulgar. And so, um, you know, that was why, again, like I said, uh, Mahalia, her family brought her up like not to go near the blues because that's not really the style that we're going for here. Um, But he, you know, again, that's what he was first initially famous for was mainstreaming that. But then in 1928, He had kind of this radical spiritual transformation, Mm. and he totally dedicated himself to writing Christian music. And, you know, just back to the—he just came back to the Lord, basically. Now, gospel actually already existed before his time. It's cute because Mahalia said the first gospel song was when the angel announced to the shepherds in Bethlehem, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Oh, I love it. She's like, that's the first gospel song. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, because that's the good news. It is the good news. That Jesus is here. Exactly. I love that. So I know I thought that was fun. But as far as like black gospel goes, uh, Charles Tinley and then a few other guys were the ones that really launched it. But Thomas Dorsey was the man who mainstreamed gospel. So he must have learned how to do that from marketing blues music. Now he knew how to mainstream gospel. Um, In fact, in my school of worship, history of worship class, I used to show a documentary on black gospel, and he figured pretty prominently. In fact, it was kind of cool because he lived to be like 98 or something, and so they actually had videos of him like singing in front of the church as an old man. He was still up there like going strong. Wow. I know. It was actually really neat to see. Um, His most famous song was actually Take My Hand, Precious Lord, which he wrote after his wife and baby both died in childbirth. And so I know, real heartbreaking, but that made that song really powerful. And also, you know, as we'll see. So um, it's really a result of his efforts that blues and gospel became so popular and influential in American culture uh, that really uh, there's this one music historian named Andrew Wilson Dixon, and he said most modern secular music can be traced back to uh, gospel which is crazy. We don't really think about that, but he kind of goes into some of the different forms. And so it's amazing to think of the influence that this music out of the church has had on our culture. It's really fascinating. But anyway, when Dorsey began promoting gospel, he would go around to churches and other venues as a presenter. And uh, sorry, not as a presenter, with a presenter. And the presenter would be um, somebody who would sing his songs for the audience. And so uh, that was what Mahalia ended up becoming. She was one of his most longstanding and well-known presenters, and she worked with him for about 14 years. So, wow. yeah, they were they were tight. They were really good, good collaboration, friends. right? Yeah, quite a collaboration, exactly. And so it was during that time, you know, while she's a presenter for Dorsey, it's the 1930s, and this is when Mahalia began to gain a little bit of public recognition. And she sang songs like "He's Got the Whole World in His Hands," right? We know that one. I can put my trust in Jesus. 
1934, she made her first recording, was, which was, God going to separate the wheat from the tares. That's a good one. <laughs> I love it. And it was, um, that was successful. And so that led her to start recording more. But her first major hit, uh, Move Up a Little Higher, didn't appear until 1945. So that became her major hit. That's actually the title of one of her biographies and stuff. So that's one of the ones that really launched her uh, into the limelight. And that's what kind of helped open the door for her to become the most, well, one of the most, if not the most well-known gospel singer of her day. Um, she began appearing on radio and television. Starting in 1950, she performed annually at Carnegie Hall before um, sold-out audiences that were actually racially integrated. And that's a big deal. Again, this is before yep. the civil rights yep. movement, right? 1950 yep. is pretty early. Yep. So that was huge. Um, she was even on Ed Sullivan's Toast of the Town program. So she's starting to really become known. Um, significantly, Roxanne Reed says that Mahalia is credited with establishing the legacy of solo gospel singing. And she became the first to present gospel to white audiences in venues outside the traditional church. So she becomes kind of a bridge builder between the white and the black communities through her music. And I think that's so neat because here she is. She's not singing blues. She's not singing jazz. She's singing for the Lord. Mm -hmm. And God Amazing. is using her to mm -hmm. build a bridge. And you see that historically in Christian music. I'm um, Again, this is something else that I thought was so cool. Um, even back in the late 1800s, during that really, or I should say mid-1800s, during that really volatile time racially in American history, um, there were uh, there was a series of revivals known as the camp meetings. And it was so cool because at the end of camp meetings, um, all everything, no matter where all the tents were set up, it was like black and white people were all there at these revival meetings. And they would all at the end of the meeting would all start singing together, worship songs, praise songs, hymns, whatever. And it was like all the walls came down through song and the Lord, worship, through worship to God. It's like we forget about our differences when our eyes are on Jesus. But and that's what we see here. The Pentecostal church was the leader in that. Yes, the they revival were. Meetings. They were. And um, again, when we talked about Amy Simple McPherson, remember when she went to the South, she refused to speak in the white churches. <laughs> and she'd <laughs> only right. speak in the black churches. And she had those tent revival meetings too. So the yeah, those went on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So the tent revival meetings were, um, again, the Pentecostals refused to see any difference, color. any color. I love it. Mm -hmm. That's great. No, I that's mean, a great. They're led by the spirit, out. right? And they're seeking to be very spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So Mahalia is now obviously coming into the spotlight, becoming very popular. So much so that ultimately, uh, eight of her records sold over a million copies. And that might not sound like a lot now, but back then that was a lot. You know, you got to remember how far publishing has come today. <laughs> back then that was really significant. Um, and again, she's, you know, bridging between white and black audiences. In 1952, she went on a tour of Europe and um, became especially popular in France and Norway. Okay, but that's really interesting because her Aunt Belle, remember the Aunt Belle, at 12 said to her, because she would sing really loud and everyone could hear her down the block, said to her, someday— Child, you're going to sing before kings and queens. Ooh, I love it. And prophetic word. I mean, yes. maybe somebody would think, oh, yes. yeah, ha, ha. But yeah. that is so beautiful. I love that. Uh, her version of Silent Night was one of the all-time best-selling records in Denmark, of all wow. places. I know. It's so crazy. And so, you know, again, at this point, she's gained quite a bit of notoriety. She was so famous and so highly regarded that she actually sang at John F. Kennedy's presidential inauguration in January of 1961. And then she became part of the civil rights movement on some level in the 50s and 60s. Again, using her music 
to bring people together, to be a bridge, to, you know, speak up um, as a member, uh, a respected member, right, of the black community. Um, in fact, at the March on Washington in 1963, she famously sang uh, the African-American spiritual, I've been buked and I've been scorned, right before Martin Luther King Jr. gave the I Have a Dream speech, you know, that obviously wow. iconic speech. We know wow. the speech, but um, I think, well, I guess some some people know, but that, that she actually opened for him yeah. with that song. And so it's kind of a neat connection that she and Martin Definitely. Luther King had. Definitely. Um, in fact, when he was assassinated in 1968, she sang his favorite song, uh, which was Dorsey's Take My Hand, Precious Lord, mm. uh, at his funeral. And mm -hmm. I, I thought that was just such a sweet tie in there with, you know, mm -hmm. Thomas Dorsey from her from her youth, you know, to Martin mm -hmm. Luther King, who was so influential in this later period of her life. And so uh, that's that's just pretty neat. But um after MLK's death, Mahalia kind of withdrew from the whole public political scene. And some of that, I think, had to do with her health because you got to remember by this time, I've kind of jumped through all of this. Uh, she's in her late 50s and she was starting to have some health issues. And so uh, it just was, you know, I, I don't know, expedient for her to kind of withdraw a little bit on some level. Um, but she did still uh, make a couple more tours, which is kind of amazing. Like I said, when you read about her health complications and some of the stuff that was starting to go on here, the fact that she pushed through and travel that she's just about to turn 60 here. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. Again, back then when people weren't necessarily jet setting all the time. Uh, in 1970, when she was 59, she did a tour in Japan and India. And her biography, I know, crazy. I just wouldn't think that. Yeah, like, wow, gospel went all the way over there at yeah, that time. Amazing. Her biographer said a wave of adulation swept her along that could have been likened to the second coming of the Beatles. <laughs> They loved her. She said she'd never been treated so royal in her life. Mm. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I think. And she's like, I think they're trying to feed me to death. You know, they're just like giving her all these banquets and, you know, all of these special occasions and, you know, uh, parties and all this stuff. Um, so which she was she was she loved it. She was so thankful and, and humbled to be there. But she was pretty happy to get home uh, back home again. Her last concert was in Munich in 1971 and on January 27th. 1972, uh, she died of a heart attack. Her funeral was attended by politicians, celebrities, everyone. Her body lay in state both in New Orleans and Chicago. So Mahalia was obviously a famous and illustrious gospel singer. But uh, the main thing, and this is what I, I so uh, love about her, um, was the fact that she did this all just for the Lord. That was huge. You know, you know, all of these other things. Yes, those are significant. It's great. You know, yeah, she was on Ed Sullivan. Wow. And she was, you know, at Carnegie Hall and she sang at JFK's inauguration. All of these things. Yes, those are all make her very famous and illustrious and a notable figure. But I don't think that's what really sets her apart because, you know, lots of gospel and R&B singers have gotten their start in the church. Um, but the majority of them have chosen to go mainstream. Right. Most yeah. people choose to go mainstream and some of them might believe in Jesus on some level. I think they still would say that, but they live pretty carnal or secular lives. And so that to me is what makes Mahalia so significant. And this is why I just fell in love with her when I was studying her. I read too that she refused high paying gigs. Yes, exactly. Which she could have been so much richer and wealthier. Totally. Totally. I mean, especially, I mean, think about this. This is a, you know, black woman. She could have, you know, gone for a full fame and all the money, but she, 
refused because she wanted to sing for the glory of God. I mean, that is like amazing. It's huge. And this goes back to the tension, the issue in her marriage, because her husband was like trying to pressure her. You have to sing jazz. That's where the money is. But she didn't want to do that. The fact that she stayed committed her entire life to singing exclusively biblically centered gospel music for the Lord, she would sing in secular venues, obviously, but she was going to sing the Lord's music. Now, I will say one, there was one caveat to this. Uh, there was a story, and this is so cute. This is on the <laughs> on that documentary that I showed my class. Duke Ellington really wanted Mahalia to sing with his band, but she kept turning him down over and over again. She's like, no, I don't want to. And they were friends, but she's just like, oh, please, you can't make me do this. Finally, he came to her house and he said, Mahalia, will you cook, a, cook dinner for me? And for whatever reason, she loved that. It just kind of disarmed her. And that's how she finally agreed to go and sing with him. He just sat down at the piano after dinner and got her going and warmed her up. So I thought that was pretty cute. But I love how she was never trying to play an angle, trying to promote herself in any way or make it big. And that's a great point you made, too, because remember the poverty, the abject poverty she grew up in, you know, that her mom died of malnutrition. I mean, how tempting. Like, oh, my gosh, I just want the easiest possible path in life for myself. And so that is such a testament to her character, her faith. Um, her simplicity, her humility. In an interview for the Saturday Evening Post in 1959, she said, I've been singing now for almost 40 years, and most of the time I've been singing for my supper as well as for the Lord. Mm. I never had a music lesson. I still can't read music. Mm. I don't know anything about chord structures. I just sing it. I never sing the same song the same way twice. I have to get my own little way in there somehow. <laughs> During rehearsal, when the conductor says, Mahalia, let's go back three bars. I have to ask, what do you mean three bars? Let's go back to the verse about the prophets. Is that what you mean? <laughs> People were always pestering me to become a blues singer. Earl Hines, Louis Armstrong heard about me and wanted me to come sing with their bands at the Grand Terrace Ballroom, but I never went. I knew that wasn't the life for me. I'll never give up gospel songs for the blues. Again, these are names we all know. I would th- Well, if you know music from that period, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, you know, these, these figures um, that would— try to, you know, it would be a real hard pressure to stand against. But I love not only her her humble, unassuming character, the fact that she's like, I don't even know how to read music. I love that about her. But also that steel determination not to compromise her convictions before the Lord. Um, again, like all the others that are in that scene, in the R&B scene and stuff, uh, Mahalia received many, many offers to sing other genres, go mainstream. Um, I mean, Yeah, it was a real temptation, but she had committed, like I said, early in life to singing gospel, so she stuck to her guns, unapologetically stood on her faith, and unapologetically stood on the word of God. Um, One time she was in an interview referring to a scripture she quoted, and she said, hey, that's what the book says, and because I'm a believer in the book, the Bible, it's been my guide and my happiness, and nothing will ever change that. So I'm not going to take none of these scholars and let them change me Mm -hmm. from what has been the belief of people for thousands of years. I mean, she's just like, this is who I am, unapologetically. And in one of her tours, I read that she took it just so she could go to Israel. And the highlight of her life was 1957 at the end of one of her tours that she got to go to Israel. And she knelt at Calvary and prayed. Mm, is I that love precious? It. That would probably be about where the garden tomb is. That's so beautiful. Isn't that oh, so cool? I love that. Yeah. And so, you know, I just really believe because she honored God, he honored her. And, you know, like, like it says that for Samuel, I think, where he says, those who honor me, I will honor. And I, I just see that all over her life. He gave her such a platform within the gospel genre without having to compromise on her convictions. She stayed 
true to what the Lord called her to do, and he honored that. She was a stellar witness for Jesus, um, not just in the black community, but in American culture and around the world. I mean, globally, she was a radiant witness. And uh, because of that platform, that gave her an avenue also, again, to break down walls, racial tensions during that difficult period. Um, I actually used a quote from Mahalia when I concluded my history of worship class because um, there was a comparison that she made between blues and gospel, and I think it just sums things up well. She said, blues are the songs of despair. Gospel songs are the songs of hope. When you're singing gospel, you have a feeling there's a cure for what's wrong. When you're through with the blues, you've got nothing to rest on. Wow. And so I love that because I think that gets to the heart of true worship, right? That it it, it points to the cure. It points— to Jesus. It gives you hope. It gives you something to rest on. And that's why she wanted to sing a, sing about Jesus. It was substantial. It was something she could hang everything on. And so the message of salvation through Jesus, that was just so beautifully proclaimed by Mahalia Jackson. You know, I always think when I go to heaven, I'm going to find the R&B, you know, the Christian <laughs> gospel corner mm-hmm. and just, you know. Oh, they're going to worship. Yeah. Don't you know it? I mean, don't you imagine how wonderful around the throne of God yeah. It's going to be in there when she's seeing Jesus and she's singing to this, you know, to Jesus who she's worshiped all her life. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They said so when neat. she knelt and prayed at Calvary, um, the, yeah. the hill in, in uh, mm. Israel, that she was just crying. Oh, just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It is. And to think like all of this music, even if you go back to like the old spirituals and gospel, it's all birthed out of suffering. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing yeah. what the, the slaves depth. went through. And they— Like the early Christians. Man, it's yes. It's depth. And, you know, so much depth when there. When we did some of our hymn writers. Mm, we did yes, that's what I should have done. Her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we did, you know, uh, Francis Havergill. Both of them had suffered. Yes, yet, that's a great point. They brought so much joy yeah. in the singing because the gospel, Jesus is their joy. Mm. You know, rejoicing in the Lord always. Mm. And so, Amen. That's Amen. what we're going to do, even though you're moving to Montana. Amen. Yes. But that's what email's about. <laughs> that's great. And Absolutely. No, we will be in touch. I so, hope so. Don't worry, folks. Yeah. So we want to thank you again for joining us on this program. I absolutely love today. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to write us, tell us how you loved it. Tell us how you missed Jasmine. Write us at <laughs> sure. graciouswords.com and look mm-hmm. for the link to WWK, Women Worth Knowing. And we look forward to hearing from you and hope you liked today's episode as much as I did. And me too. (laughs) (laughs) It's been an honor. I love this show. And, you know, like Cheryl said, I could pop back in eventually. But um, I, yeah, but I have just been so blessed and thankful to be a part of this. It's been the high, just such a highlight, you know. I mean, gosh, what a great way to, you know, spend COVID, right? That's when we started all of this. And so it's been just wonderful. So thank you, Cheryl. It's been an honor. And these stories. So yes. much. And that's why Jasmine can't resist coming back. Yes, so we love each other. She will be in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So until then, God bless you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.